Well, go ahead and take a seat and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Last week we looked at how we are to approach our amazing God. We've been looking at the miracles of our Savior. We have been seeing them on display and the way that Jesus works is miraculous and it shows us that He is God. It's proving that He is God. So the question that we asked last week is how do we approach this God? How are we to approach him, and how does he care for us once we approach him? And we saw a beautiful demonstration of the way to approach our awesome God in the Syrophoenician woman and how she approached God with that rightless assertiveness. Uh, God, I'm asking for you to do something for me, not on the basis of my goodness, but your goodness. And it's not because I deserve anything. I'm just asking for grace. And just a morsel of your grace is enough for me to satisfy me. We had a great time feasting at the Lord's table last Sunday. And now what we're going to do is we're going to see the way that people who don't understand grace respond to grace. People who don't understand. When grace doesn't compute in somebody's mind, when getting something that you don't deserve doesn't make sense, how do you respond to the God of the universe? And yet again, we will see Jesus' power on display, his authority, his control, and his glory. So let's read these verses Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6 together. Jesus entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They, religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's ask God's blessing on our time. God, these these verses are so rich. The issue at hand before us in these verses is so deep. We'd be foolish to think that we can comprehend what Jesus is doing in these verses apart from the Holy Spirit giving us understanding. God, we want to know the heart of our Savior that looks upon the Pharisees with anger in his heart and grief over their hardness of heart, and we do not want to be like these Pharisees. And yet inside of each and every one of us is a heart that has a tendency to do exactly what they do to choose the route that they choose to gain a right standing before God. It's why our Savior is angered at them. So Father, I pray that you would help us to feel with the emotions of our Savior this morning, that we would understand exactly why he does what he does, how he does what he does, and that as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, we would see him speak through them, over them, to each and every one of us here this morning. 
God, what a privilege it is to come again to your word. Open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. These verses, just six short verses, give us the big issue very clearly. The big issue here is the Sabbath. You can see that in verse 2. They're watching Jesus to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. Now, this isn't the only time that Jesus does this. The whole Sabbath thing is a very big deal to Jesus. He is attacking the Sabbath and the religious leaders' view of the Sabbath. Let's just take a little tour uh, through the gospel accounts. Go to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. I just want to read a couple more of these accounts of Jesus going after this issue of the Sabbath. Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Jesus is teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. There's a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. She was bent over, doubled, could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said, woman, why are you, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, but not on the Sabbath. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over the glorious things being done by him. He picks the Sabbath day, he sees this woman, he frees this woman from the spirit and from being bent over, and they are indignant. They respond to him with anger. Uh, turn just one chapter over, Luke chapter 14, verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely, and there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, and he said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's bringing the attack to them. Do you see this as being lawful? They keep silent. And he took hold of him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you who has a son or an ox fall into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not make a reply to this. Go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, a passage that we went through when we studied the Gospel of John, an amazing passage, very, very profound passage with so much going on. Verse 1, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda. It has five porticos, and in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the strain of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever the disease was with which he was afflicted. And a man who was there, who had been ill for 38 years, is lying beside the pool. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? One of those questions that you just kind of want to apologize on behalf of our Savior for, just like we saw last week. Sorry, Jesus, that's not the right way to treat this man. Of course he wants to be healed. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, 
and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So again, we have the Sabbath issue. Central to this healing is the Sabbath issue. We could keep on reading, but the Pharisees are going to say, hey, who told you to do this? You can't pick up your pallet and walk on a Saturday, on a Sabbath day. Can't do this. So here's my question. Why is the Sabbath such a big deal? Why is this something that Jesus is going to attack? Why is this something that the Pharisees are going to become indignant about? You know that the Sabbath was commanded by God as a day of rest. It's a day of rest from commerce. It's a day of rest from business. It's a day of rest from work. It's not a day of rest from walking. You could pick up your pallet and walk. But the religious leaders had turned God's great law into a burden. Matthew 15 says that Jesus told the Pharisees that they had substituted man's conditions for God's laws. They had taken man's conditions and put them in. They had become a burden. Luke chapter 11, verse 46, Jesus says, You weigh men down with burdens too hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The religious leaders had placed impossible burdens on the people. A day that was supposed to be the best day of the week. A day of rest. A day to remember God with everything that you had to stop and to cease working became a day of burden, became a day that was one that no one looked forward to. The best day of the week became the worst day of the week. Why? Because the religious leaders had made 39 categories of Sabbath laws. Um, They knew that God had said, rest, do not work. And the next question was, what constitutes working? So they made 39 categories of what work is and what you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Let me give you just a couple of these. No burden could be carried that weighed more than a dried fig. You can carry a burden, but if it weighs more than a dried fig, you can't. If you put an olive in your mouth and you reject it because it's bad, you can't put another whole olive in the next time because your mouth had already tasted the flavor of one whole olive, so you had to cut it in half and eat just half an olive. If you threw an object into the air and caught it with the other hand, it was sinful. You can't throw an object in, so jugglers, you can't do your job on a Sabbath. If you are in one place and you reach out your arm for food and the Sabbath overtook you, So the sun's going down, and you say, can you please pass me the chips? And the sun goes down. You are not allowed to bring it back to your your mouth. You would have to drop the food where it was because you couldn't bring it back because it's the Sabbath. A scribe couldn't carry a pen. A tailor couldn't carry a needle. A pupil couldn't carry a book. Uh, You couldn't examine your clothing because if you could find like a little lice on it or something that you didn't want on there, you would inadvertently kill it or get it away, and that's work. Wool couldn't be dyed. Nothing could be sold. Nothing could be bought. An egg could not be boiled, even if all you did was put it in the sand and the sand heated it up. You had to take it out. If a candle was lit, you couldn't put it out. If it wasn't lit, you couldn't light it. Can't move a chair because a chair would make a rut in the ground, and that would be digging a ditch. Woman couldn't wear jewelry because jewelry weighs more than a dried fig. A radish couldn't be left in salt because it would make it pickle, and that's work for the radish. Couldn't wear false teeth because if they fell out, then you'd be tempted to pick them up, and that'd be bearing a burden. Couldn't carry a handkerchief. Uh, You could wear a handkerchief, but you couldn't hold it. You couldn't spit into the dirt because that's plowing a ditch in the dirt. Uh, There was even a debate about a man with a wooden leg. So pirates, listen up. 
If your house is on fire and you're not wearing your wooden leg, you have to take the wooden leg and put it on and walk out. You couldn't hop out holding the wooden leg because that would be bearing a burden. And if you can't get to your wooden leg and you ask a family member to go grab it as your house is burning down and your leg will burn down too, you couldn't have the family member bring it and attach it to your leg. You had to go crawl over, hop over, put it on, and walk out. The list goes on and on. 39 categories with number, hundreds of lists underneath it. And we laugh at it, and rightfully so. We laugh at how ridiculous these laws are. But you have to understand the issue at hand, the heart behind everything that's going to be happening in these verses, everything that happens with the Sabbath, is the issue of true religion. True religion. This is why Jesus is going to get mad. This is why Jesus is speaking the way he does to the Pharisees. This is why Jesus is making a deal of this at all. What is true religion? Most people in the world, if they believe that there is a God, they believe that you relate to that God by being good. Right? Most people in the world, if they believe that there is a God, believe that you relate to that God by being good. You do things to be accepted by that God. Almost every single religion is based on this principle in one way, shape, or form. You connect to God by doing. If I obey, I will be accepted. But the gospel is that Jesus perfectly obeyed in our place because we couldn't obey. And he gives us that perfection. Therefore, we obey because we have been accepted, not obey to get accepted. We obey our God because he has graciously already accepted us in Christ. We don't obey to be accepted, to deserve or earn God's love. So both people, the very religious, the people that would say, I'm going to do things to earn God's favor, they obey laws, and a true believer obeys laws. But they obey laws for completely different reasons. In the case, let's take the Sabbath. Somebody might keep the Sabbath out of a burden. You feel enslaved. You feel like you have to follow this command that God has given to you, or else he's going to be mad at you. And so you do what God tells you to do because you feel burdened. In the case of the gospel, you do what God tells you to do because it's your delight. You love God, and he's given you rules to help keep you safe, to help point you in the right direction. It's not a burden anymore. In religion, the purpose of obeying a law is to assure that you are right with God. That's why religious people want to narrow everything down and distill everything down to details. Tell me what I can do, what I can't do. That's all I want to know. What can I do, what can't I do? So everything becomes details. Just tell me what I have to do so I can push all of God's buttons so that he loves me. That's all I need to know. But for a believer, the laws of God are completely different. They're still binding. We still want to do what God has told us to do, but we do it for a completely different reason. We don't do it in order to be loved by God. We do it because we already have been loved by God. There's a big difference. So when Jesus is doing one thing, he's doing a billion things, like we always say. He's doing a billion things. And what he does when he goes into the synagogue in Mark chapter 3 is he's going to knock out religion from under the Pharisees. He's, he's going to show them it doesn't work. He's going to heal this man in love and in kindness. He's going to reveal his glory. And by the way, after Jesus died and rose again, Jesus really hit this truth home of making an end to all religion and specifically with the Sabbath, replacing it with himself. Because no longer did the church meet on the Sabbath. No longer did they meet on a Saturday. 
In the New Testament, when Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, then the church started to meet on the first day of the week, no longer the Sabbath day, no longer keeping it the way that it had been kept because Jesus is our Sabbath. And we'll talk about that more as we go through this passage. So turn back to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. And before we dive into verses 1 through 6, we need to set the stage, and we set it nicely with Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through the end of the chapter. So in Mark chapter 2, Jesus says, I'm, I've come to bring an end to religion. Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, your view of religion is do things and God will be pleased by you. Therefore, you think you're good because you do good things. You're a good person. You're going to get to heaven because you're a good person. I've come for the sick. I've come for the lost. I've come for those who know that they can never do anything good enough to get to me. I've come to get to them, to rescue them. So he gives this parable of the new cloth and the new patch, the new patch on an old cloth and the, the new wine and old wineskins. And it's all a metaphor for you can't just take Jesus and stick him inside of the Pharisaical religion. You can't take the Messiah that the Pharisees thought was supposed to be the Messiah and put him into their religion. You have to obliterate that religion. The religious system of the Pharisees does not work. So, after Jesus says those things, verse 23 in Mark chapter 2 happens. And Mark tells us that it happens. It just so happens this way. That Jesus is passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So he's going through the grain fields. It just so happened with his disciples on the Sabbath day. And they're picking the heads of the grain. And they're eating them. They're squishing them in their hand. They're eating them. This is a beautiful provision made in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, where God says, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you can pluck the heads with your hand, but don't wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So don't take their whole share of crops, but you can take one or two there if you're hungry. And the Pharisees see, verse 24, and they said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, is what they are doing unlawful on the Sabbath? Not in God's economy. But in man-made religion, yes. And so Jesus, using an argument from the greater to the lesser, says this. Have you never read, verse 25, what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat, except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. What he's saying, he's going back to a um, story of, in David's life. For the sake of time, we can't go there. David was hungry. David was dying of hunger. And he went into the priest. He went into the tabernacle and he said, can I eat some of the consecrated showbread? And that's not allowed. Not allowed to eat that bread. But the priest very wise priest, understood that no ceremony should survive when some person dies. Ceremony is ceremony. Ritual is symbolic. You don't save a ceremony and lose a person. Ceremonies have their place, but mercy always triumphs over a ceremony, over a ritual. So what Jesus is saying is, David did something that was unlawful. God made a law and the priest said, you know what, we're going to go ahead and bypass this law and give the bread to David. And God said, that's okay, that's good. So if David is able to, quote unquote, go, go around, go bypass God's law, and it's okay in God's economy, then how much more so am I allowed to break 
your man-made religion, your man-made laws. If David is allowed by God to violate a rule that God himself had made because he was dying of hunger, then Jesus is saying, certainly we can violate your man-made rules. Pharisees, your laws don't have any binding authority on us. And then he says this, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He says the Sabbath was made to be a rest. Pharisees, you've turned it into a burden. And the person who designed it to be a rest is none other than Jesus himself. When he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I'm the one. I am God. I was the one who wrote that. I was the one who put that into existence. I was the one who originated that. He's claiming to be God. Now, We've come to this a couple times. When Jesus makes this claim, I am Lord of the Sabbath, he's claiming to be God. We have to ask the question, is he truly who he claims to be? And this is one of the reasons why Jesus does the miracles that he does. They are validating the message that he's proclaiming. What he is saying about himself is being validated by the miracles that he's working. But you can't have, some people try to do this. Jesus is a good teacher. He's a good person just not God. How many times have you heard that, right? Jesus is a good person, good teacher, but no, I don't believe he's God. You, you can't have that. Remember C.S. Lewis's liar, lunatic Lord, right? You can't have Jesus proclaiming that he is God and him not be God and still be a good teacher. You can't have that. Because if he is saying, I am God and he's not, then he's either lying and he knows it or he's crazy. He thinks he's God, but he's just crazy, and he doesn't even know that he's not God. Is he truly God? Well, the next section, Mark is going to put these right next to each other to give us proof that he is God. Now, we already read verses 1 through 6, but just notice the similarities and the differences here. I love how Mark puts these two occasions together. We've got the grain fields, and we've got the synagogue. The synagogue owned by the Pharisees. This is their home turf. Synagogue owned by the Pharisees. Grain fields owned by whoever owned the grain field. There's no claim that we know of, just some random stranger. Look at the similarities. There's two main similarities. Number one, the miracle on the Sabbath day in the synagogue happens on Sabbath, and the picking of the grain happens on the Sabbath. Number two, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. Those are the two main similarities between both of these narratives. But notice all the differences. The first account deals with Jesus just happening, verse 23. It just happened. He's just walking around. He's passing through a grain field. This is out in the open. Nobody else is there. The Pharisees just happen to walk along. And they're the ones who instigate. They're the ones who say, excuse me, Jesus, you're not allowed to do that. But in this next narrative, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Jesus is going to go to their turf. It's not out in the open. It's not in a place where everybody's just hanging out. Jesus is going to instigate. He's going to ask the first question. He's going to initiate. And it's going to lead to a very interesting response. So, verse 1, he enters the synagogue owned by the Pharisees. He knew the Pharisees would be there. He knew they'd be hanging out. And they're hanging out because they want to accuse him. End of verse 2. They're there so they want, they're wanting to watch him so that they would accuse Jesus. They're not there to worship God. They're not there to learn from the scriptures. They're there to catch Jesus. They're watching him. 
because there's a man, end of verse 1, whose hand was withered. Luke tells us that this was his right hand in the Gospel of Luke in the parallel account in Luke chapter 6. It was his right hand. So probably his working hand. Um, tradition tells us that this man was a stone mason who had lost the ability to work and had become a beggar. His hand has atrophied. It's completely withered. It's completely gone. He can't use it. It's just stuck. And Jesus sees him. And the Pharisees see that Jesus sees him. The man sees that Jesus sees him. And the drama that unfolds in this account, this is why, again, the Bible is not boring. You have to put yourself in the mind of, of the people that are there. You have to put yourself in the sandals of the people that are there. The drama that unfolds is amazing. They're watching him to see, verse 2, if he's going to heal him so they can accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. Not just, hey, I see you with a withered hand, be healed. He's going to make this a spectacle. Synagogue, similar to a church, right? A church setting, there's a, a platform up front where the word of God would be read and would be taught and there would be prayers. There's a, a stage, as it were. So Jesus says, you know what? Let's make this incredibly dramatic. Be like me saying, Jeff, I know you have a problem. Jeff, come on up here and stand here. I want everybody to take note, everybody to see this. Right in front of everybody. And then, as the man walks forward, standing up there with Jesus, Jesus says in verse 4 to the Pharisees, Hey, can I heal this man? And look at what he does. Hey, you know, Jeff, come on up, come forward, stand here. Jeff has a withered hand. Everybody knows Jeff. Everybody knows Jeff has a withered hand. They see the withered hand. We've got Pharisees over here. We've got Jeff's family members over here. And Jesus says, hey, Pharisees, can I heal this guy? Can I heal this man? What do you think? This is beautiful. Because the Pharisees are there to trap our Savior, right? And Jesus just turns the trap around and springs it on them. Because how, how do you win this? Jesus said, can I heal this guy? Am I able to heal this man? If they say, no, it's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to heal that guy. Number one, I think Jesus would say, well, I absolutely can heal him because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And he would just put his authority over these men and say, no, 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 you don't have any claim on me. And the whole synagogue would erupt with like oohs and ahs that Jesus just fought the Pharisees and won and this man has his hand back. If the Pharisees say, no, you can't heal him, what, what is, what's the family members going to think? No, 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 I, I know that this man can heal people. Why would you ever prevent him from healing my friend, my brother, my father, my husband? But if they say, yes, you can go ahead and do that. You can go ahead and heal. Everybody in the congregation would look at the Pharisees and say, you have no laws. You've broken your laws. You're a hypocrite. You have told me time and time again, I'm not allowed to do these things on the Sabbath. And now you're saying he can do these things. I'm not following your religion. Either way, they lose their followers. There's no way they win. And they know it. Jesus says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they keep silent. <laughs> they know we've lost. <laughs> we can't win this. Matthew 12 Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you help get your sheep out of a hole, how much more should you help an injured human being? If you help sheep who have fallen into a pit on the Sabbath and you can bring them out, how much more should you help a human? 
But the issue here, and this is the beauty of our Savior, what kind of an injury does this man have? According to the Sabbath laws, if somebody was dying, an emergency, emergency situation, they're dying, they will die if they don't have instant medical care. You could, you could tend to them. You could keep them alive and, and then work on them throughout the rest of the week. But this man does not have a life-threatening illness. This man has a postponable illness, right? This man can be healed later. It's a nasty injury. It's a devastating injury, but it is not life-threatening. And Jesus says, you're my guy. This is perfect because I don't have to heal you today. You can still live tomorrow. And if you go back to all of those other passages that we read, uh, the woman who's bent over with the Spirit, the man by the pool of Bethesda, 38 years, all of them do the same thing. Jesus picks people that have been hurting for a long time and says, today's the day. You could wait one more day. I think the disciples are constantly saying, just wait a couple more minutes, just a few more hours. Let's get to Sunday so we don't have this controversy. And Jesus says, this religious system ends today. It ends now. And so he goes after them and he looks around with anger, verse 5. He's angry because of their hardness of heart. Look, they know they're wrong. Why is Jesus angry? I don't know if we can fully understand it, but what is clear is clear. They have hard hearts. They know they're wrong. They know they're trapped. They know they're wrong. They're in their corner. They're huddling up. What should we say? And maybe one of them says, I think today's the day we have to give up this charade. Maybe today's the day. Guys, you know this man's the Savior. You know he's the Messiah. You know he's the Son of God. Can we just stop? We've been wrong. Let's listen to this man. And the rest of the crowd said, no, no, no. The, the Pharisees, no. I know we're wrong. I know we lost today, but we're going to find some way to get rid of this man. I, mean, I don't know if this has happened to you. You know you're wrong, but you just keep fighting even though you know you're wrong. Instead of just stop, time out. I'm wrong. Please, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. Let's not be like the Pharisees. Let's own our wrongdoing. Let's joyfully admit our failures and live in humility. So he looks around with anger. Why is he angry? He's grieved because they are hard-hearted. They won't admit they're wrong. He's angry because they have taken a gift from God and turned it into a burden. They've taken a command of God and twisted it. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I'm sure it has, where your words get twisted and you hear from somebody that, they heard that you said something. No, has this happened to you? You say, you know, Kyle, I, I really want to go to Jeff's party. He has a withered hand. I'd love to see him. I heard he was healed by Jesus. I want to go to Jeff's party. So, Kyle, I can't, though. Could you tell Jeff, I really wish I could go. I'm sure it's going to be a fun time, but I just can't make it. And Kyle goes, sure, I'll go. And then Jeff says, hey, Kyle told me that you really didn't want to go to my party. You thought it was going to be boring and lame, and you don't like me. I go back to Kyle and say, Kyle, how, what in the world? How did what I say got, what happened? I think that's why Jesus is very angry here. His words have been twisted. He, the Lord of the Sabbath, making a day that was supposed to be restful, relaxing, beautiful, a blessing, now has become a burden. So, with anger and grief, in front of everybody, the, the beauty of this drama. You know, Jeff, come up here. Look, can you hold your hand? Can you open your hand? No. Does everybody know Jeff? Everybody knows Jeff? Where's Jeff's mom? Where's Jeff's dad? God, okay, hi, nice to see you. Great. Hey, Pharisees, can I heal this man today? 
and just silence. And just the whole room is, what's he going to say? What are they going to say? And they keep silent. And I just like to think of Jesus not even looking at this man, holding his hand and saying, get well. Just staring at the Pharisees. You don't think I can do this? I can do this. Stretch out your hand. And immediately he stretched it out. Once again, we see when Jesus performs a miracle, he takes care of the problem and the effects of the problem instantly. This man, his hand's been stuck, opens up, stretches it out instantaneously. He is able to use it. He doesn't need physical therapy. He doesn't need a brace. He doesn't need uh, work on it. He's instantly able to use it. Now, what's the response? What is the, what, what's happening in this synagogue? Stretch out your hand. I think all of Jeff's family runs up. You're healed, Jeff. Maybe hugs Jesus. Thank you. And everybody just runs out. This is amazing, glorifying God. What do the Pharisees do? Verse 6. They went out and immediately, just as immediately as the man's hand was restored, they immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, there's a Greek word for kill. They don't use that Greek word here. There's a Greek word for way beyond killing. Good and dead. Let's do everything we possibly can to kill and then kill and then kill and just good and dead. Destroy. I read this and I, I think at first reading, wow, things have escalated very quickly here, right? This just, we went from a guy who couldn't use his hand, now can use his hand, and they want to kill this man, destroy this man. Why? Even more than just the strange tone, it's, it's who they're hanging out with. The Pharisees went out and conspired with the Herodians. So the Pharisees are crazy religious. They love morality. They have thousands of rules. The Herodians are the exact opposite. They are lying, thieving cheaters. They are terrible pagans, immoral people. But the Pharisees say, let's work together on killing this man. Why? Why do they hate him so much? Jesus literally just saves a man's hand and potentially his livelihood, and they want to kill him. Why? Here's why. Because the gospel does not say the good people are in and the bad people are out. Like the Pharisees had believed. Like they staked their entire life upon. Their entire life was based on the premise, good people make it, bad people don't. The gospel says... Bad people who admit that they're bad people make it. And good people who think they're good don't. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive to the religious. The gospel says that those who know that they're not better, who know that they're not more moral than anyone else, those are the people who are in. It's just what Jesus has said. I didn't come for those who are well. I came as a physician for those who are sick. I came as a doctor to help those who know they need help. You don't go to a doctor for a doctor to tell you, you know what, try one, two, three steps. You'll be fine. Let's do this. You go to a doctor to say, give me what has happened to me. What could happen? Tell me all the details that I need to know. Give me the news of what's going on in my body. You don't go to a doctor for advice. You go to a doctor for help, life-saving help. And the Jewish people had turned religion, the Pharisees had turned religion into just a bunch of rules, lists. Here's some advice to be a better person. And Jesus says, I haven't come for anybody who thinks that they can be a better person. I've come for those who say, I don't need advice. I need a savior. 
I need news that will change my life. I need the gospel. Notice the Pharisees, their response has zero joy inside of it. This man has been brought back to life, as it were. New livelihood, new ability to work again. There had to have been so much joy in this synagogue. And there's no joy in the Pharisees. They just look and say, he broke our laws. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote, speaking of this parable, or of this miracle, and he said, why all of this viciousness? Why this desire to destroy the meek and the lowly Jesus? Why this murderous attempt to do away with God? The answer is here in the Sabbath question. They wanted rules. They did not want God's grace. They wanted human merit. They did not want the simplicity of divine pardon. They wanted to do something for themselves. I want to be able to keep some rules so that when I see God face to face and God says, why should I let you into heaven? I can say, because I did good things. And if you take that away from me, you're telling me I can't do good things and you're attacking my pride. You're attacking my entire paradigm of religiosity. They don't celebrate. They don't have joy. Legalists don't celebrate. Legalists just observe. This is like Luke 15. You remember the parable of the prodigal son who returns home? Jesus, uh, the, the father, goes out to the uh, older brother and says, Older brother, come in, your son, your, bro your brother, my son has come home. Let's celebrate. There's a party. And it's as if the older brother's just standing there with his arms crossed saying, Yeah, but you did it on the Sabbath. You broke my laws. What a privilege to celebrate the goodness of our God. Mark gives us a sweeping statement in verses 12, uh, 7 through 12 in chapter 3 of just the rest of Jesus' popularity, his power, and his person. Jesus is God. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath. He's claiming to be the one who originated the Sabbath, but he's also claiming something a little bit deeper. And as we wrap up these verses, we see what he's claiming about himself. In verse 28 of chapter 2, he claims to be Lord even of the Sabbath. The, the wording of that is, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath. Jesus isn't just claiming to have power over the Sabbath. He's claiming to be the Sabbath himself. He has come to completely change the way that you and I rest. We tend to think of rest. When we hear the word Sabbath, we think of rest. And we tend to think of rest as just, I'm exhausted and I need to sleep. But there's something more to rest than just being tired and needing to be rejuvenated. The one day a week rest that the Sabbath was, was just a taste of the divine rest that we need. Think about it. When God rested in Genesis 1, he didn't rest because he was tired, right? Six days of work creating the world and going, oh man, I am exhausted. I need to take a break. There's, there's a rest because you're exhausted, yes. But that's not the rest that God rested on that first Sabbath. That rest is saying, I'm completely satisfied with my work. Look at everything I've done. Look at everything I've accomplished. There's nothing left for me to do. I can take a break. That's the rest that the Sabbath was supposed to commemorate. He had finished creating. He had finished doing everything. He was satisfied, and he looks, and he says, I can take a break. So utterly satisfied by his work, so perfectly content that he can declare it's done, it's finished, and I can rest. That's what the Sabbath is supposed to be. And that's why Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Just as God the Father said during that week of creation, I am completely satisfied with the work that's been done, and 
You can rest. We can rest. Jesus said the exact same thing on the cross. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Completely satisfied with the work that I have accomplished. I've paid in full all the debt that everyone had against God because of their sin. I've paid it. It's finished. And so there's nothing left for you and for me to do. The work is done and we can rest in him doing the work and us not having to. That does not mean that we don't work but we work completely differently now, not to get God's approval or favor, but because we have already been given graciously God's approval and favor. There's an amazing illustration of this in the movie The Chariots of Fire. Many of you have seen it. It's based on the true story of the two Olympians in Paris who were competing in 1924. One of them, Eric Little, is a Christian. He refused to run on the Sabbath and basically forfeited his shot at the gold medal, which we, he was highly favored to win. And the movie is definitely about taking a day off for rest, Sabbath, those kinds of things, definitely. But there's a deeper level in that movie where Eric Little is contrasted with Harold Abrams, who is his uh, competition. He's another gold medal Olympian. And Abrams, speaking of the event that he and Little were supposed to run in together, said this, I have 10 seconds to justify my entire existence. I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Speaking of his race, speaking of his sprint, I have 10 seconds to prove my worth, to prove my existence. Little, on the other hand, you remember his phrase, right? Speaking to his sister, knowing that God's accepted him on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ, said, I love to run because God made me run. God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. They're both running. They're both exerting themselves, but in different ways. Harold is weary even when he's resting, even when he's taking a day off, he's saying, I only have 10 seconds to justify my entire existence. He is anxious, working, even when he's resting. Eric Little is resting, even when he's in, exerting himself. I just love to run because I feel God's pleasure as I run. I don't have to run to prove to God that he should love me. I just get to run because I know he already loves me. Both are trying hard to win the gold, but one to prove himself and one because God had already proven himself for Eric in Christ. Pharisees and other legalistic people are weary even when they're resting. And you and I both know this, right? We all have Pharisees inside of us that are weary even when we're resting because we're wondering, does God love me? Have I done enough to earn and to merit and Jesus would say to you and to me today from this text, I am the Sabbath. I did the work so you can rest in me. Jesus on the cross experienced deep restlessness of separation from God so that we can have the deep rest of knowing that God loves us and our sins have been forgiven. Jesus on the cross cried out, it is finished. There's no more work left to do. I can rest now. I can cease from working because he did all of the work. And because the Lord of the Sabbath said, it is finished, we can rest from religious efforts forever. Brothers and sisters, we can rest from religious efforts forever. You don't ever have to do anything to earn God's favor. If you trust in the work of Jesus Christ, your favor has already been earned by the merits of your great high priest. 
So you are able to rest. Yes, you're going to work, but you're going to work in a resting way because you know there is nothing you could ever do to make God love you more. There's nothing you could ever do to make God love you less because God sees you, the Father sees you, wearing the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he says to you and to me just exactly what he said about his son. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. He says that about you today if you are in Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray today you would recognize, just like the Pharisees, everybody knows that there is a God. Everybody knows that we've got to find some way to get to God. But the Pharisees have said, I get to God by my doing. And all of us get stuck in that trap. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? Usually the response is because I was a good person. The Bible says there's no one good. No, not one. Deep down inside, we all have a sinful nature. We all desire to go our own way and to say, God, your rules, I don't like them. I wish I could make the rules. I wish I were God. Today is the day to do what the Bible says. Repent. Turn from sin. Turn to Jesus. Throw yourself at his mercy. Cry out to him for forgiveness of sins because he lived the perfect sinless life that you and I needed to do to live on our own, to get to Christ, to get to God on our own. But we could never be perfect. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Jesus died the death that we deserve after living the life that we needed to live but we could never live. He died the death that we need to die. Punished because of our sins so that we could be treated as if we had lived Jesus' perfect life. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and he stands before us today offering the invitation, come and rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'll do the work for you. Just come follow me. There's a preacher uh, named Dick Lucas once, once gave an example of an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. Early church Christian neighbor in Rome. Oh, the neighbor says, I hear you're religious. That's great. Religion's a good thing. Where is your temple? Where is your holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. <laughs> no temple? Well, but where do your priests work and where do they do their rituals? The Christian replies, we don't have priests to mediate the presence of God. Jesus is our priest. No priests. So where do you offer your sacrifices? Who does that work to acquire the favor of your God? The Christian replies, we don't need a sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. Wait, no temple? No priests? No sacrifice? What kind of religion is this? And the answer is, no religion at all. It's our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It so clearly points to Jesus as our rest. And God, I pray this morning that we would find our rest in him. We would work and we would work hard. The Bible is so abundantly clear that we are to work. We are to toil. The word in the Greek is to strive to the point of exhaustion. But we do that because we know that we could never lose your favor and we could never do anything to merit your favor. Our are standing before God, just as we sang earlier. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's my confidence. That's my standing place. That's everything. So every time we, we look inward to see, okay, here's a reason why I think God would love me, because I can offer him this. God, I pray that we'd go back to the gospel. Jesus, you came to heal the sick, to save the lost. 
God, I pray that you would enable us to rest in Christ and his finished work today. Thank you that we have a great high priest in heaven pleading on our behalf. We have a temple in heaven where we will get to be with him one day. And we have a sacrifice once for all given by Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing to our great high priest. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea.